Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is a Friday, January 21st. It is Data Science Happy Hour number 65. I feel like every few weeks, man, we just hit another milestone. Milestone after milestone after milestone. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune in to the podcast episode that was released today with Dr. Joe Perez. We talked about uh, talked about a lot of stuff, man. So hopefully you guys tune in and and uh, check it out. Talking about how to bring your story to uh, life, your data story to life, and make it actionable. So definitely check that out. Um, hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the Comet Office Hours that we did on Wednesday. This week we covered um, pretty much the importance of baseline models. Uh, did a quick presentation about that as well as the accompanying blog post and had a awesome community member come in and, and share uh, her experience in um, like, you know, what, what it's like for her to, to build models in her workflow and her process. So it's always fun to see how different folks do different things. So hopefully you get a chance to tune into that. Um, so available on my YouTube, also on the comment YouTube as well. So definitely check that out. Shout out to everybody in the building. Dave Langer's back. Darth, Darth Langer. It's good to see you again, Dave. It's been quite some time. Uh, Dave, what's going on? Russell, what's going on? Ken G is in the building. Eric Sims, Matt Damon, and of course, last but not least, the legendary Vin Vichista. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Uh, man, uh, it feels like we get the old gang back together, man. It's giving me flashbacks to, uh, you know, well over a year ago, man. Uh, good to see all you guys here. Um, so, I guess let me open this question, man. Like I've been trying to find places to get more information about data science and machine learning. I know all of us tend to hang out on LinkedIn. That's how we all know each other. That's where we usually go for, uh, for knowledge and information, but where else is there um, that, you know, we can go to ask questions. Uh, maybe we want to ask questions pseudonymously or maybe ask questions, you know, uh, in a forum where it's not as, as, public so to speak um what are some other awesome communities that that you know uh i mean and by community i mean just like other places like whether it's you know different slack communities whether it's different websites stack overflow reddit quora things like that where do you guys go for um for for awesome information and help when you need it um dave linger let's 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 uh let's go with you man also i have no idea how happy i am to see you again man uh, this probably won't surprise anybody. I'm kind of an antisocial person, you know. I like computers more than humans, generally speaking. So the Googs, man, that's that's where I go. I really don't know of like any sort of like community that you're describing where it's not public, right? You can go to Stack Overflow and the associated websites and ask questions there, but I usually just Google and I find usually what I find what I need, generally speaking. That so is, I'm a bad person to ask. Yeah, that, well, that's the mark of a very expert Googler because it's very hard sometimes for me to find uh, the answers that I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, like I, I was spending some time on on Stack Exchange. There's so many different parts to Stack Exchange, right? There's Stack Overflow. That's like the, the overarching site. But uh, there's one that was called like cross-validated or data science. And uh, there's like the data science Stack Exchange. And it was just, it's crickets, man. People are asking questions regularly but these questions go so unanswered and i'm just like oh man i wonder if that's is that some place where i could step in maybe help people and 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 uh provide some value give advice um you know i i, I tend to like answering more technical questions uh 
Yeah, I'm getting kind of tired of the uh, how do I break into data science type of questions. That's another story for a different day. Uh, but Eric, Eric Riddock, good to see you here, my friend. Uh, nice setup, by the way. Uh, wh- where do you go, man? Where do you go for um for for uh, information, kind of kind of like you know to to get help? Where else do you hang out on on the web when it comes to data science and machine learning stuff? Uh, by the way, if you guys do have questions, feel free to drop them in the chat or in the comment section on LinkedIn, on YouTube, wherever it is that you're watching. I mean, since since you asked, I should say I, I haven't figured it out. But also, guys, look, if you like this microphone and arm? It's Harpreet's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I don't know. I, I ask around at work. We have at Ben, there's actually some pretty legit, really friendly guys and women who who are pretty helpful. But sometimes I just get stuck on like systems questions. And that's, that's when I feel like I really don't know where to go. Like, for example, you do stuff with Comet and like, like you probably got to ask about like experiment tracking and like managing like model metadata and stuff. But actually I feel like that, like that stuff about actually putting models in production still is something only like a very small sliver of like, at least people in my network are, are talking about and thinking about. And so I feel like when it comes time to build systems, which is my job, I, I don't really have a lot of resources. So. Uh, awesome. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like what, uh, what is like a, a typical systems type of question? If that makes, if that question makes sense. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah. Like um, I could ask you guys, like, how do you, like, what's your feature store? You know, like how, how are you guys, working around a feature store. Some people use Elasticsearch, you know, Elasticsearch is nice because it has like a built-in vector similarity search. And that's the way a lot of people do recommend date, like recommender systems. So you could use a data lake. Um, or another question is like, how do you guys get your inferences available to the rest of your company? Like, like you might develop models and, you know, make recommendations about something, but does that end up in other software? Like, do you guys have like, a, like an API that people, like a data gateway? I don't know, some things like that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for providing that additional context. Uh, there's the Trinity of Eric's in the uh, building. So I hear we've got a, uh, uh, the, the three Eric's, Eric Skitonga, Eric Riddick and Eric Sims. Eric Sims, uh, wh- where do you hang out for, uh, for other questions besides like LinkedIn? Uh, and then let's go to Ken after that, Ken G, uh, then, then uh, Vin Vashista, and then I'm just waiting for questions to come in. So if you guys got questions, please do let me know. Uh, so go for it, Eric. Yeah, so uh, like Dave, I start with Google and then just go from there. And I found myself recently, I found some really helpful answers on Quora because I was looking for some like, I was looking for recommender system project ideas, something that would help me connect with like an interesting data or something just that I hadn't considered before. And there was a really smart guy there who like listed out some data sets I'd never heard of. And so it was just like a really helpful, well thought out answer that I wouldn't ever really see a post on LinkedIn, anything like that. So um, I don't go to Quora first, but I end up there once in a while. The other place that I sometimes go to is ResearchGate when I Google things. And ResearchGate is like consistently way over my head. Um, I wish, you know, one of these days I will have better math chops and I will get it. But usually I just get on there. It's like, eh, I came to the wrong party and I try and back out slowly. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely... I mean, it's a wealth of knowledge as long as I can actually consume it. Um, so those are probably a couple that come to mind. Just curious about the uh, uh, recommender system. Like, what's your project kind of looking like? What's your ideation for that project? 
Yeah. So I would, I, I found like, uh, from that, from that project, I found like, uh, like a, like a dating website, um, data set. So I want to make a, a silly recommender engine for Valentine's day. I don't know if I'll have something ready in time, but it was like, you know, a fun, like collaborative, uh, filtering thing that I could use or practice with. Um, but what I, what I really want to do is create one that, uh, leverages diversity and serendipity to help us to help avoid polarization um, in like search search results because that's what happens so readily now. And so how can we do something? The way I think of it is like, can we make a recommender system that makes this better instead of just making, giving us more of what we want? Yeah. I remember you shared that you shared a research paper along the, the, the lines of that, that injecting serendipity into re, uh, to, to recommendation systems. I thought that was super fascinating. Uh, by any yeah. chance, man, if you want to uh, collaborate on that, uh, hit me up, man. Let's uh, let's let's do something. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, uh, Kenji, go for it. So I've I have a lot of thoughts on this. This is something I, I I'm constantly asked and and I also think of well I think about. Um, so the first obviously for me is Google. Like everyone else, I Google everything immediately, but. I've seen a lot of people have success with YouTube as well. So YouTube is like a, a little bit more intimate question asking platform. Not everyone's going to read it. It's not in like a Reddit style thread where things get, get like super well publicized. So if you have a personal question, you ask it and the, the creator is engaged in their community. A lot of the times you'll get a pretty good and, and detailed answer there. Also, Discord servers or Slack channels have been very, very popular more recently. I think Mickey and he, like, he's awesome. It sounds like that community is really strong and a great place to ask you know relevant questions. Um, I also like Kaggle and GitHub. So GitHub, if you're having an issue with a certain library, like there's literally like systems in place for you to ask questions about it. And there's also places where other people are having problems with that same library, you'll be able to, to evaluate it and understand it better. You might find exactly what you're looking for, right? And then Kaggle, it's literally a place for a data scientist that they have a, a forum type uh, architecture as well. It's it, perfect for, for asking the, the right types of questions there. So I don't know if that's exactly exhaustive, but hopefully that's a little bit more outside of the box. and people might find something that fits their specific question style across one of those categories. Awesome. Ken, thank you so much. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Dimitros with the MLOps community. That thing is, is bumping, man. It's, it's huge. It's a lot of stuff going on there. It's the, uh, I mean, the thing with, with like Slack communities and discord communities, at least for me, I, uh, I just feel like I can't keep up, man. Like it, it's, you know, it's extremely difficult to keep up on things i guess that you know we got that that charlie dow thing which i tried to be a part of but then just got left in the dust because there's the movement so quick right um but yeah yeah that that's uh the challenging part uh to me at least about slack communities and, and discord is just the pace at which it moves um I, I find myself being more of a fan of forums where the questions are more searchable and uh it's indexed a little bit better and they, they show up on search engines and stuff as well. Uh, Vin, what about you? And then after Vin, we'll go to, um, we'll go to uh, Eric's question about SQL. Uh, and then if anybody else 
watching on LinkedIn or here in the chat uh, has a question, please let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Uh, also, just quick shout out to uh, some of the people that joined since uh, since we started. Jennifer Narden, what's going on? Marina's in the building. Kiko's here as well. Kristen, haven't seen you in a, in a long while. Kristen, always good to see you. And Matt Diamond. Uh, Vin, go for it. I'm going to give the old man answer because I think everybody's covered the really good communities. As you go in your career and you meet people that are way smarter than you, stay in touch with them and start building communities like little private communities, because the smartest people on earth will spend, you know, a couple of minutes here and there answering questions. But I've found and stumbled my way into these little groups where there's five, you know, it's between five and 10. Some of them are a little bigger than that. You'll meet up about once a month, but everybody's and a resource to everybody else. And the questions that get asked, like I've learned more from watching other people ask really smart questions and seeing the answers than I ever have from my own questions. I mean, it's a broader approach when you have a little, you know, a little group like that. And as long as everybody's pulling their own weight and able to contribute and help in one way, shape or form, answer questions, those groups, it it takes a while to build them up, but those groups are invaluable because everyone actually kind of jumps in and jumps on questions. It's almost like one of these, but you have access to it by email or you know, text or Slack or whatever. So build these up. And if you can curate one, if you can be like the person that brings everybody together and starts introducing new people to the group and everything like that, you become such an invaluable person because when you get to a certain level of question, it's like, where are you going to go to ask that? Mm-hmm. You know, and so you have to have a different type of group if you want to get any sort of answer that's comprehensive and not, you know, Oh, that's a stupid question or the, the default five answers that you already knew tried and didn't work. So build out these groups for yourselves. They're, they're valuable and try to join one. You know, if you see people meeting on a regular basis, say, Hey, can I, can I get it on that? It's like we got going on here at the RS data science happy hours. I think that's one thing I feel like that then done a great job at was, was kind of building this, this space every Friday for us to get together, but it, I haven't had that success translate over into my, my own Slack channel for, for the, uh, for the RC data science that it's, it's crickets there. And I'm, I'm wondering what I could do to make that a, a better place, uh, a place where people can come with, with more questions. Um, you know, tons of people join every week, but, nobody's I feel like utilizing that resource can go for it. So that's something that I'm always thinking about is you create these communities and you sort of need a catalyst. A lot of the time you need people that are going to be engaging consistently. That person can be yourself, but I, it might be some self-selection, but I, I think that empowering people who are active or early active to be more engaged, to be administrators or to, to have more involvement and to think creatively about, um, about how to improve the, the quality of the forum is, is awesome. I mean, that's something I've seen with the 66 days of data discord is that there are a couple admin there that take it really seriously. They're super involved. And I try my best to like give them opportunities to put their own spin on things. Like a couple of them have made like bots for the server that like remove spam that do really incredible stuff that I have absolutely no clue how to do. And every one of those is incredibly cool. Right. And so the idea is that, um, the more autonomy you give them, the more control, the more they feel like it's theirs, 
the more engagement they're going to drum up and other people are going to see that and want to be more involved as well. There's also some really cool ways on discord to gamify it. So if people comment, they, they raise their level and things like that, which I think is so cool for some reason, I'm not even the highest ranked in my own server, which is, which is wild. Right. Um, but again, I don't know as much about the Slack platform, but that is one of the reasons why something like a discord, which is very developer friendly could be a good option as well. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know you had a discord for 66 days of data. Can go ahead and drop a link to that. So people can join that. I'll be happy to join that. Um, I think like, like I mentioned, one thing I'd, I want to do is just, I, got, I feel like I got a lot of like, you know, knowledge with machine learning and stats that I do not get to share as often as I would like to. Uh, so I just need, need an outlet for that. Need an outlet for that. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, shout out to Dylan in the house. Dylan, good to see you again. Uh, Eric, let's jump to your question. And then anybody joining in on LinkedIn, if you guys got questions, drop a question right there in the chat, or if you're watching, smash that like wherever you are. So this afternoon, uh, my boss messaged me and said that they'd like to um, update our interview process. And one of the things they want to include is a SQL assessment. Like when I was interviewing for it, um, I had like a take-home project, but I didn't have a SQL assessment um, as part of it. And so it's the setup for it. We have um, Codility, I guess, as a platform. I've never heard of it, but it's just one of the, um, you know, you can live live code on it. The idea for the interview is that it would be a 30-minute call with the candidate. So I would actually be talking to them um, and then having them answer, you know, work through any any number of questions for roughly 25 of those minutes and assessing whatever it is that we feel like should be assessed. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on what would be, what, what would you do uh, if you were trying to put that together? I, I want to go to uh, Dave Langer for this one. He, he's, he's laughing. He knew I was going to come to him. Uh, I'm not, I'm not laughing because you, I thought you were going to come <laughs> to me. I'm laughing because I hope you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, it's going to be hard for me not to go into a diatribe around the ridiculousness of interview processes these days. Um, so I'm going to try and keep that on the side, Eric, as much as I can. So first up, what kind of role are you talking about? Because the kind of SQL that you want to test is going to be highly determined on the role. So for example, great question. don't ask data analysts about indexing. I mean, come on. Really, that's a DBA kind of job for first and foremost, right? Maybe ask them about how they might use an index to make their query faster, but not like, you know, what's a clustered index or something like that. It just doesn't make any sense. So that'd be the first thing I would do is like, what's the role? So fill me in on that. My job, essentially. So analyst, analyst stuff, not DBA. I don't even know what clustered indexing is, so I'm not going there. <laughs> okay, sweet. See, you proved my point. You proved my point, right? Um, I would... You know, if you guys are familiar with me, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, Pareto principle, 20, 80-20 rule, right? There is a 20% selection of SQL that data analysts and data-focused people use about 80% of the time. So it's going to be, you know, the normal kind of stuff, right? Can you do, can you use window functions? Can you use case when within, you know, inside of group buys and that sort of thing to actually create interesting transformations of the raw tabular data into something that's a little bit more aggregated and useful for data analytics. That's, that's typically where I would start um, in terms of like the surface area of the kinds of SQL that you would do. 
And maybe it's as simple as, and I don't know this platform that you're talking about, um, maybe it's as simple as having a couple of different tables that you show them through screen share and then say, okay, join these up. And I want you to be able to create um, like date-based count features are very, very good. That's a very, very good indication that somebody in my experience has enough SQL knowledge to actually do, you know, um, has enough SQL knowledge in the data analytics space. So that's kind of what I would do. I would start with simple tables, ask them like an 80-20 kind of, kind of question and see if they can work their way through it. Cool. Maybe um, if, if you don't, if anybody doesn't have something else to add or if you do great, but uh, if you have uh, examples of good or horrible um, assessments, I mean, I, I have had one online uh, SQL assessment and it was terrible. The thing that was most stressful to me about it was that it was not live. Uh, I didn't have a person that I could talk to. It was just like, you either get this or you don't get this and you're on your own. And it just, I didn't, I didn't like that feeling, but you know, if I'm going to be one administering it, I can, I take it on myself to be a human being talking to a human being and try and help set them at ease because that's what I can do. Um, so yeah, yeah, good or bad examples are also appreciated. Yeah. So um, I resonated with Vin's comment earlier about being the old man. I think I'm probably the oldest person on the call. <laughs> so I'm going to give you an old man answer perspective. Try to simulate as much as you can a whiteboard interview experience using a virtual technology. That would be my advice, which is, of course, as you indicated, would be live, right? Show them a table on a screen, walk them through it. They're going to get stuck. That's okay. I don't expect people myself to, I don't expect them to know the syntax like backwards and forwards. I mean, this idea that somebody has spent 400 hours on leak code studying SQL for one interview is just insane. It doesn't matter in the end, because once they land the job, they're going to Google the syntax anyway. It doesn't matter. So what's more important is understanding what is their base level of understanding of the core concepts. And if they screw up a little bit of the syntax, who cares, right? But you can only evaluate that live. Is, is kind of the, is, I don't know if this is a good way of thinking about the question. Um, I guess my question is, is this a good way of thinking about it? Is like, what's like the most reasonably challenging question you could ask that would be indicative of uh, other skills or indicative of, of like, does that kind of make sense? Like indicative of, of lower level, base level knowledge, I guess. Yeah. Cause like a thought, one thought that I was wondering was like, like HTEs, for example, like, do I really have time or like the complexity to set something up where it'd be reasonable for someone to need to put something together like that? It's something useful. It's something that I use frequently, but like, I don't really know that there's necessary in 25 minutes. I don't really know that I've got time for something like that. So how do I assess it otherwise, you know, in, yeah. in, through conversation or whatever. The example that I gave, and I've interviewed a lot of people in my time. That's why there's all this gray in my beard. Um, for SQL, count, count based features using like a, like using a date column is like, the one of the single best things I've ever found to actually ascertain someone's general level of SQL knowledge for pulling data out of a relational database and transforming it into something that's useful for analytics. Because you've got to hit, you got to do a group by, you need a case win, you need to work with date times all at the same time. So it's a reasonable, like, low, it's like a reasonable one problem kind of thing that assesses a lot of people's knowledge regarding how they use SQL 
with a relational database and then transform that into a feature set that's useful for analysis. Then what are your thoughts here? Put in the comments, and I know this is going to sound sarcastic, but one thing that I would actually do is like give a fairly hard, not quite, you know, I said ridiculously hard, but like fairly hard question. And then say, hey, Google it. Google the answer unless you know it off the top of your head. And based on the Google that you just did, you come up with a, you actually implement what you Googled because that's kind of realistic. I mean, we run into stuff that we don't understand all the time or just forgot. And if we could add that to interviews and actually include it in the process, we're like, here's a question I know you don't know, but the whole point of this is to figure out how fast you can figure it out. And can you then, once you figured it out, implement? Because that's one of our, you know, I think across the board as data scientists, it's one of our biggest skills because there's so much that you can run into that there's no way you've ever run into before, or there's complexities that you'll run into and you'll ask the team and they'll go, I don't know, Google. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. I feel like it's more realistic. The single most important Basically skill. how we spent. Oh yeah. Go, go, go for it. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say single most important skill in data science is resourcefulness. And that would be one hell of a way to test for resourcefulness. We spent like the first 20 minutes of this conversation talking about various variations of Google. So yeah. <clears throat> that's definitely fitting. Uh, uh, Russell, you had some uh, thoughts here as well uh, as I scroll up through the uh, chat. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, I've, I've thrown in a couple of comments in the, uh, in the, in the chat window here. I'll, I'll start in reverse order. So I've just uh, responded to uh, Vin's comment about Google. And I was saying very often I'll still Google about simple questions, simple solutions, just so that I see what's out there in the, uh, in the dataverse, basically see if there's better ways to do things. So I mentioned the anchor bias uh, or anchoring bias, you know, so that I haven't chosen my favorite solution that I stick to and keep doing the same old thing for five years, even though a better um, procedure may have been discovered. Um, you know, three years ago, you know, a more simple way. So I like to try to make sure that I'm implementing best practice um, from a, you know, a, a respected peer um, forum. Uh, but also to see what else is out there, good and bad. So if there's bad methods out there, I like to have visibility of them so that if I see anybody else doing them, I can say, well, yeah, I, I can see that that's popular, but, you know, that's not the best way. Try looking at this way, you know. so. Um, Google is, uh, it's a, it's a great resource, but it is volatile. So if anybody looks at Google for anything, you know, look for 10 things, 20 different, um, responses. Don't look at the first thing that comes back at the top of the page. I mean, very often those are ad, um, generated anyway. So try and look past the ads, but even then go down you know, to the bottom of the page, go two or three pages and try and uh, take like, a, a, you know, a mean average of the answers that come through, the ones that uh, are getting good feedback and are there a lot. Those are the ones to trust rather than the, the, the odd one that's in there that, you know, may look good on the surface, but if there's no validation to it and you try to uh, implement that, you may end up in a pickle. Russell, thank you very much. Uh, shout out to Greg Coquillo in the building. Good to see you, Greg. All right. So, Question coming in from uh, LinkedIn. I think he's here, uh, Bavin. Um, so I'm looking for 
some help and guidance around how the organizations are establishing some ethical AI practices. Um, we're working on some things, but uh, uh, this is a great forum to get some inputs from everybody here. So thank you so much for any um, of the guidance that you're providing. I had that one question. Thanks. Uh, so uh, definitely great question. Uh, I just want to say I, I don't have an answer off the top of my head, but I, I just wanted to let you know that on February 5th, I believe, I'm doing a uh, podcast interview with um, uh, Grant Fleming, who is the author of a book called Responsible Data Science. I've yet to go through the book. Well, I've gone through it a little bit, but um, that might be a book worth checking out. Uh, I did skim through it uh, and it, it has seemed very practical, practical and uh, very applicable. Like, you know, there's, you can apply those concepts. So definitely check that out. Uh, but in the meantime, does anybody want to jump in here, provide some uh, insights here for Bhavan? Just he's looking for trends and organizations for establishing ethical AI practices and maybe some good resources uh, for guidance. I wonder if, is Makiko here? I feel like Makiko would have a good response. Hi. Hey, where are you? Oh, there you are. Um, oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> I see you now. Uh, yeah, any tips? Yeah, I think it, it's kind of interesting because it's like ethical AI is the thing that everyone wants to do, but not everyone's frankly capable of doing it. Um, because uh, a couple things, right? Like one, it requires like monitoring and observability uh, sophistication for maturity, which not a lot of companies do have that. Um, yeah. Secondly, like, and there's a couple other things too, right? Like, um, so that's like model performance, right? Then the second part that you sort of need is you kind of need eyes on the ground when it comes to the data. So you could argue that then that starts touching like data governance, provenance, lineage. Um, and then at the end of the day, like you need to be understanding how to connect like the data science and machine learning sort of efforts with like the broader business goals. So for example, way back when, uh, my favorite example in the world. So there was some residential, so some real estate tech company, which may or may not have been Zillow. I also don't remember. It could have been Redfin or someone. They were trying to roll out this idea to, um, you know, essentially do like white glove treatment for people who were listing properties above a certain value. Now, the problem with that is that uh, property value is may or may not be correlated with things, for example, like race, like your economic, you know, socioeconomic status, all that stuff. Because in the U.S., we had this policy called redlining, where essentially, you know, um, people of color were not, they were not provided like the same interest rates and loans to purchase property, right? So- yeah. So there's like a lot of huge issues there. Um, but I would say like the first couple, like the three sort of major components I see, at least on the technology side is one, having good observability and monitoring is like absolutely key, both on like machine learning or both on your models and your data. Um, the second part is, um, is definitely like having eyes on the data because of the distribution changes, like irrespective of the models, you kind of need to understand that ahead of time. Um, third is having a good connection with legal. To be honest, in law of companies, I feel like sometimes that relationship isn't there 
until like something bad happens, at which legals and like, oh, why did you like hopscotch around us? And then the data science leadership is like, well, because it takes forever to get through you guys. It takes forever for y'all to do like the review. Um, and I would say like the sort of the fourth aspect is like having a conversation on like how do the broader data and machine learning efforts fit into the company and like the, the business and the product and like how that is connected with like the users. Um, so a lot of words to say that like there are people who are doing ethical AI who are involved in that. Facebook has a fair, Microsoft, um, Amazon, they all have groups that are focused on that. But when you start getting away from the big tech companies or like the companies with the huge resources, it becomes like, frankly, more of a talking point as opposed to like something that people are like act actively involved in. And if they are, it's like a side effect of them investing in like their monitoring and production efforts or their monitoring observability tracing and like data governance efforts. So, sorry, that should have been more useful, but um, yeah, you know, if you're getting started, like good for you, like, you know, not everyone's there yet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's tons of resources in, in the forms of links to like white papers and stuff in the chat. And as always, uh, all the links will be in the show notes uh, for this happy hour session as well. So feel free to click through on your leisure. Uh, anybody else has any, any input here? I'm, I'm curious, uh, so, you know, Ben or Dave, or um, I, I got a question, like what, what's the, what's the connect, connection between like data literacy and like ethical data science? If, if, if there is one, Dave, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I guess the question then becomes is like at base, what is data science first and foremost, right? And I know some of you, if not most, are going to roll your eyes going, oh God, we got to go in this again. Because um, for a lot of folks in social media, for example, data science equal equal machine learning. So if you if that's what you feel, then, then there isn't really a ton of overlap, actually. If you think of data science essentially as this kind of umbrella term for being able to do analytics, right? Use data to make a more effective business in some way, then the relationship is one of a, maybe of a maturity spectrum or a, a path of development where you start with data literacy, where you start with the basics, right? What are, what, what is data? How do I understand data? What is, how do I understand the data is collected? What usefulness does this data provide me? How do then do I use the data in a relatively standardized way to achieve some sort of outcome? For example, how do I make better decisions? How do I analyze what's going on with my KPIs? That sort of thing. And then along the spectrum, right along that journey, you move more into the data science kind of space. So I would say they're related depending on how you define data science. And these days, I'm not quite sure what the popular definition is, is because I don't pay any attention to it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what freak? <laughs> let's go to uh, let's go to Vin, and then after Vin, Russell. Russell's got some great comments here. And if anybody else has any uh, input here, feel free to just uh, raise your hand icon. I'll add you to the queue. Uh, talking about uh, ethical uh, trends in establishing ethical AI practices, and perhaps just some good resources for guidance. Yeah, I think the first thing to note is I'm going to sound really optimistic after saying this, but I have to lead off by saying every business is only as ethical as their bank account and their customers allow them to be. So it, 
you know, when you build out this at the very beginning, it's easy to think, oh, I've got a mandate. They're always going to stand it. No, they're not. Now, that being said, most companies are actually worried in some way, shape or form about ethics when it comes to AI, because they're worried about getting sued. They're also seeing regulations come down, uh, US, Canada, Europe. Uh, they're all, I mean, China's got a robust set of regulations as well. I mean, they're they're coming out of a number of different countries. So the fear is we're going to get sued. We're going to have a massive fine. And for companies like Google and Facebook, they legitimately do not care. And that's the, that's the barrier that you're always going to run into when you're building an ethics program is at some point, someone is going to question, well, if no one else is paying attention to these rules, why should we? And so when you start one of these campaigns, when you start one of these programs, you have to start with a doctrine and it has to be adopted by the entire company. And that's really, and, and it's an honest doctrine. You can't, you know, you can't be aspirational when you build this, you have to go through and talk to individual business units and senior leadership and say, okay, what are we really, really most concerned with? What are our actual AI principles, what are the things that we're worried about? And those are going to be part of that doctrine. And everything makes more sense when you have some basic founding principles and some guidelines where you say, we won't do this. We won't do that. We will go to this level of effort to make sure that we don't have these negative impacts. Here's what we define as negative and bad. Here's what we define as good. Because sometimes what one side thinks is a bad impact of data science or machine learning, you as a company might not agree. And, and so build that out. It's not, it doesn't have to be a huge document. You're not writing a, a religious thesis. You're really just coming up with the core principles for everything that you do going forward. And you can have everyone sign that. So everyone throughout the organization who's talking about projects, who's building projects, has now signed on to an ethical standard. And that's something you can hold them accountable for. You can put that in senior leadership's goals. You can, you know, and this is why I say it has to be, it has to be realistic or none of that other stuff happens. Or this document gets emailed and goes into the ether and someone archives it somewhere where no one can find it. So really, you know, I can, we can talk about ethical frameworks because there's tons of them. But I think if you don't start with that foundation of just explaining what the company really cares about and what the company is actually willing to do and what the company will not do. You don't have any sort of success criteria going forward and you can't really, uh, you can't build rules for every scenario that is ever going to come up. And so if you have a set of guidelines, at least people can look at that guideline and say, okay, I tried to stay in, you know, the, in the spirit of this guideline, or I have no idea. I don't think this covers anything. I need to go talk to somebody. And half of it is that second scenario where you run into something and you go, okay, I remember signing this document and I don't know, you know, it's just that awareness piece that sometimes is enough to surface ethical concerns. And it gives a place to go someone that you can talk to if that ethical concern comes up. And so with that foundation, I think you'll be way better off no matter what direction you go in, but also don't get shot. Don't, don't let this be the thing that gets you fired because you are more passionate about it than the businesses. You know, I'll, I'll conclude with that. Most businesses have great, great intentions, but at the end of the day, the bottom line and the shareholders are the bottom line and the shareholders. Ben, thank you very much. 
uh, Russell, go for it. You got some great comments. Anybody else wants to uh, provide some, uh, you know, any, any insight on this, please do let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Or if you got questions on LinkedIn or questions here in the chat that you want to uh, ask, please go ahead and let me know and I'll put you into the queue. Yeah, I was just building upon Mikiko's earlier comments about, uh, you know, um, bank loan analysis and, and bias and prejudice and that. Uh, and uh, I was simply identifying that the data present uh, in that industry prior to the advent of AI could easily have um, allowed for better analysis and better decision making. And the reason it didn't is because the people, as Vin was mentioning, who held the purse strings and maybe the entire organization, if this was institutional um, opinion and bias, chose not to. So just as important as the, uh, the AI or the ML models themselves in making decisions is the awareness and acknowledgement of cognitive biases uh, in all decisions. So that's decisions of interpreting the data, decisions of building the model in the first place. You know, if you selectively choose uh, a spread of a thousand, say, photographs, for example, to do some image recognition, and you bias that selection so that there's 90% of the thing that you wanted to discover and 10% of everything else, then, yeah, your model is going to give you the answer you want, but it's not going to be the right answer, you know? And the, the same thing applies to everything. So. I was just really um, drawing attention to the fact that uh, in the last, say, five to 10 years, I've seen a lot of, um, let's call it noise, or a lot, a lot of reporting about cognitive biases. And, you know, there's 40 or 50 there if you really want to drill down into them, but some of the most common, like anchoring bias, uh, uh, confirmation bias, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so having the people that are in charge of building the models in the first place, um, make sure that they are well-versed in the biases and are aware of identifying early signs of bias so that they can try to direct the model in the right direction before it's built wrong and you have to go back and fix it. Uh, you know, if it gets too far, it's going to be written off. You know, it's more economical to build a whole new model than go back and try and fix a model that, that that's biased from the ground up. Uh, and also the people that digest and consume the output from those models try to make sure that they are educated enough to detect the first instances of bias that may not so much organically present itself, but present itself where there was no sign of it in the first instance. Um, yeah, I think that's it. So just be really aware of, uh, of those biases. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, some uh, comments coming in. Kenji says, I think having a person outside of the team who has no stake in the project observe for morality and ethics as well. And also having non-data scientists evaluate for ethics is valuable. Makiko says, I don't necessarily think machine learning is a great tool for identifying bias personally, unless someone is willing to do model and feature analysis. Yeah, it's an interesting point. There's nothing inherently biased about, you know, a random forest or a convolutional neural network or any of those model architectures themselves nothing inherently biased about those it's the data that you train on so just be responsible with the features that you select and make sure that whatever samples you have whatever data you have is it's representative of everyone or everything you know i mean just be as representative as possible 
Um, Greg, uh, see your hands up, go for it. Yeah, um, just wanted to share with everyone. I think um, a lot of great points were made um, when it comes to ethics and you, you touched on this, that the tool itself, and by tool, I mean the machine learning models, they're not unethical. So the best way to operationalize um, ethics is to embed it into your processes, build that framework first, define what's ethical and what's not. And uh, with that, embed this framework into your project lifecycle management. So if you think about the data science project lifecycle management, where it starts, where it ends, for each of these stages, you have a set of questions that you ask and see if they meet or don't meet the threshold for ethics versus not ethical. Then once you do, you do that, you deploy, you have to have a mechanism for um, what I call auditing. So how do you measure that? How do you check from time to time when these models are making decisions that they're not drifting, they're not going towards the unethical uh, barriers? So, you know, just, it, this is where, you know, you kind of, uh, you have to bring this, uh, what do you say, um, auditing framework to make sure you surface these areas. So lastly, just in case you missed it, I put on the side here that I do have a copy of a great doc from integrate.ai. They have something about responsible AI in consumer enterprise. Uh, they have a framework that show you how to operationalize uh, this. Um, and I believe you can abstract it to um, other industries as well. So if you're interested and I didn't get your name on time, the best thing to do is to get with me on LinkedIn and I'll send you a copy directly there. It's probably better to do it directly on LinkedIn versus sending you an email. So I'd rather do that. Um, so let me know if you're interested to, to read this doc. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, Russell is asking, could it be possible to create an independent model solely for the purpose of analyzing the output of another model to identify evidence of bias. Uh, yeah, you could use generative adversarial networks for that. There is a link to a paper uh, that will be in the show notes. Uh, so definitely check that out. It's called Generative Adversarial Networks for Mitigating Biases in Machine Learning Systems. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. Makiko, go for it. Yeah, I think it's three random points. Like one, um, like around, well, so, Something that helps, right, is don't have racist people in charge of policy. <laughs> that that helps a lot, right? Uh, <laughs> because with redlining, um, right, and uh, what was the early iteration of Freddie May and sorry, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, right? Um, they knew exactly what they were doing, right? Like that's where the term came from. Was they had maps where they literally said, "Okay, this one." This neighborhood, let's color in red, and this one it's yellow and green, and somehow corresponds to ethnic groups and all that stuff, right? So they kind of knew exactly what they were doing. So if you think about it, the system worked great for them. It worked terrible for like you know the end users and the people who are impacted by that, right? Because they found studies to show that uh, a lot of the generational wealth that people of color could have had in the U.S a lot of that can, you can tie it back to essentially 
the kinds of interest rates and the kinds of homes and property they were able to purchase during that time, right? Um, so, you know, so that I think that you can have a perfectly working system, but that is still kind of bad. <laughs> so that's that's one thing to point out, right? Um, so we do have to hold our leadership or people who are in charge of all that stuff accountable. Um, I think the second part too, right, is that I think the term bias is a little bit overloaded. Uh, so I was talking with Serge Massis about this, but Jan LeCun, he got into, there's a little bit of a ker kerfuffle going on at a while ago because he had said there's no racist models. And, but that's not to say that machine learning cannot be racist, right? What he was saying is that like, it, it's, it really is the data and essentially like how you structure the model. And like that will kind of impact the results you get and also the different segments of people that are like impacted. And I prefer that explanation because when we say the model's racist, we're like essentially deferring accountability and ownership for making the system, for making the pipelines, for making our products better onto the tooling as opposed to the people who design and manage the tooling and the experiments. Right. So I think that's something to consider is that like it is a little bit of an overload to overload term. But on, on the other hand, if you have all the right data models, like the machine learning models, it's like one of the things, right? Like if you they will only predict off the data you give them, right? They will only predict off the features that you give them. So something that you can do, right? For example, is you hypothetically, if you had like protected data about people. You could like an, like analyze the model outputs and say like okay well this is saying let's give a lower interest rate to people of color than non people of color right so but at the same time it's like should you be analyzing off of that? so it's it's one of these things where it's like it's such a such a complicated question but I think there's a couple of things right like number one if it's a, if it's a question of like who should be doing better we should always kind of like look to ourselves as professionals and as like teams to go, what can we kind of do to contribute to that effort? Maybe it's better observability. Maybe it's being more, you know, friendly to legal, <laughs> getting them in the conversations more or something like that. Um, you know, but also to like, to a certain extent, we benefit off of models being very biased, right? Like we want them to give highly targeted predictions or what have you. Um, so I do think it comes down to like, Companies need to, there needs to be incentives for companies to be willing to make a change. If the incentive is not there, it's just not going to happen. So, you know. But, let's, not, yeah. let's not forget the, the complexity of it too. When you, when you yeah. have a company that is transnational, right? So, you know, the values that you hold dear to yourself in the yeah. United States is the same in China, right? Uh, do they value dogs the same way we value dogs? For example, uh, you're training a, an automated vehicle to, you know, roam around in the street. Uh, is that vehicle going to do everything it can to avoid killing a dog here versus over there? So how do you build those ethical policies that these machine learnings will be governed under uh, to make sure yeah. that you respect them and you don't get penalized? So I know for sure it's almost impossible to remove bias from data, or at least you'll be running a right race. But I'm also pro independently audited results. So if you think about unrepresented groups that are constantly being penalized by the machine, so when you pull the historical results 
of that machine, you can kind of see trends and those analysis can either be done by a machine or people uh, to make sure that they surface those discrepancies. So uh, very good point here, Mikiko. Thank you. Yeah, and actually another common, um, another problem that we're kind of seeing pop up, for example, like in like the NLP space uh, for, I guess, people to chew over is pronouns. Um, that is a big, big thing, <laughs> right? So, you know, at MailChimp, I'm not going to necessarily talk about the work that we're doing, right? But, uh, or in other companies where we deal with a lot of like text data, right? Uh, whether it's emails, whether you're a residential listing posting or what have you, um, you want to, like, we want to make sure that, for example, if you're, if you're trying to target to a person's like business title or like marital status or, or what have you, there's all this data that's available like now that you can buy, I mean, for years that you could buy to enrich your data. Uh, but like, how do you respect like the pronouns? Do you, do you even care about like, in, like bring that into your analysis? Should you bring that into your analysis? So that like, that's like another thing that's like really in, like interesting to bring up because in certain like communities, they're like, why are we even caring? Like, why do we care about pronouns? And in others, it's like, yeah, we should totally care, right? If we're going to care about, you know, uh, like race or culture or language or nationality, like we should care about pronouns, you know? And that I think comes down to the company, right? Like some companies are, you know, very much like, you know, we, we need to support policies to allow people to like bring their whole selves to work and feel safe and all that jazz. And like, you know, some companies like Coinbase, they're like, we're not going to be engaging in any uh, progressive, I don't say progressive policies. Um, you know, they basically said like, they're not going to be doing like DI efforts and I think other stuff. Right. And they basically said like, it's just not part of our mission. We don't care about it's not. Yeah. Like, you know, so what does machine learning look like at Coinbase versus like, what does machine learning look like at a company where they're like, no, we, that's important to us. Like, you know, pronouns, like making sure, you know, your nationality where you live, like, you know, all that other stuff. So, that's a part that's like, it's not a technical problem, but it's like an internal conversation that reflects the business's priorities and all the last stuff. Interesting well, agree. And, and even if you, oh, sorry, but I, go ahead. No, no, go for it. I was going to say to the point of, you know, embedding that framework into the stages of that life cycle. You know, for example, when you get to feature engineering, for example, you have to ask the right questions, right? So if you're trying to, I guess, uh, explore or classify or uh, uh, forecast or whatever it is, uh, salary uh, levels for people, you have to ask yourself, what does race have to do with it? Do you have to use that as a feature in your model, right? Is, is it really doing something, right? So if if there's no mean, you, you have to bring up these questions to kind of uh, ask yourself by ingesting this, does it really uh, affect the result that you're trying to obtain? Um, and, and sometimes you'll discover that a lot of these columns can be omitted to prevent uh, some sort of uh, unnecessary bias to be ingested into, into the model. So asking the right questions, asking the ethical questions is the way to go. Yeah, just because a feature is highly predictive doesn't mean that you should use it to make a prediction. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting point, McKee was making about the pronouns. I'm just wondering, like, if, if you're training on on data for NLP tasks, I'm sure there has to be a cutoff point 
temporally for the data that you use because this modern usage of, of pronouns probably wasn't, you know, uh, as pronounced, you know, five to seven years ago. You know what I mean? Um, but before we get to Vin's point here, uh, there's a, somebody on, on LinkedIn, Brian, had uh, suggested Reed Blackman to follow. Reed Blackman, CEO of Virtue AI Ethics Advisor on LinkedIn. Uh, posts a lot of great content on, uh, on uh, uh, ethical data science, ethical AI. Uh, before we get to Vin, I just quickly want to read off this post that's very relevant. His most recent post said that one of the most dangerous ideas in AI ethics community is that the data scientists and engineers can, by themselves, save us from the ethical risks of AI. Take each of the big three ethical risks of AI, bias, black boxes, and privacy violations. In each case, a large segment of the AI community thinks we can already solve this with technical fixes. We get, for example, mathematical definitions or metrics or fairness, Lime and SHAP for explainability and techniques like differential privacy. But those metrics are incompatible with each other. Those explanations are unintelligible to the people that can be wronged by AI. And anonymization doesn't entail that people have control over their personal data. If senior leaders don't understand that these technical approaches to ethical risks are far from sufficient, we are in big trouble. And then, uh, then in the comment section of that same post, uh, which I'll share here in the, uh, in the links, uh, it says that AI doesn't give rise to novel ethical risks. It gives rise to novel sources of ethical risks with which you are all too familiar. Uh, Vin, go for it. Yeah, actually, talking to Greg's point, the when you get into the the layers of different ethical frameworks what what you're actually getting into is different ontologies where people classify things differently they categorize things and their relationships between categories change and this is one of those big pieces where just awareness of ontologies and beginning to build out a value connected ontology it brings awareness to how someone could, and I use this every time I talk about this, I use vegetarians, vegans, and carnivores. When you start talking about, you know, serving somebody an ad, do I serve this person an ad for a steakhouse? If I do that to someone who eats meat, awesome. You know, I have connected with their ontology. My ad matches with their ontology. Someone who's a vegetarian, that's a different ontology. They look at meat and meat is not connected with food. Whereas for someone who's a carnivore, meat is food. And so when you start creating these ontologies, you inadvertently start gaining insights into some of the value systems. And so implementing ontologies is one way that you can start to at least understand some of these areas, and I'm not going into the really complex, controversial ones, but, you know, I think the, the food and that one's about as easy as it gets on, uh, on talking about this topic. But you begin to see more complex relationships and value systems as part of your metadata around your data catalogs and those eventually build out ontologies. The hard thing is when you have conflicting ontologies where the majority of people, overwhelming majority of people view things one way. And there is a negative impact towards a very small group. And that small group uh, just overwhelmingly throughout history has 
always been trampled because in some cases you don't even know they're there. And so the last thing I'll say is there, there was an entire group of um, autonomous driving engineers working on machine learning who learned by tweet that their computer vision data sets were missing trans individuals. And so there had been a couple of experiments done that showed that cars were more likely to run over people who were trans. You know, and this is one of those, if you don't have somebody like that on your team, if you don't have somebody that falls into one of these groups on your team or who, you know, when I say like that, I mean, who thinks that way, because you really do need someone like that who just thinks of every possible group, no matter how small and has a moment of, well, what would we check? What would we test? Because there's just so many of these and you can have a crazy impact that just shows up out of nowhere because they aren't thinking about it. it. Just lack of awareness. And thank you very much. Um, any other uh, insight here? Any other points? I got a question actually coming in from Costa. If you guys um happy to uh, happy to stay on this point or we can move on to the next question. Um, this one is uh, not, as touchy of a subject, but Costa wants to know uh, data science or machine learning teams in large software products. How do you guys go about task estimation story points? Uh, what's different to you and what's the same? How do you factor in experimentation? That's a good one, actually. Um, Mitros just points, uh, pasted something, not pasted, copied, shared something, whatever, in uh, MLOps the other day about. Um, data science and scrum i'll go ahead and i'll post that link uh here um i mean there's some parts of data science like experimentation for example that uh it's kind of open-ended so i feel like just time boxing it and then giving that thing like five points because uh it takes a lot of work uh but but i'm curious uh, i'd love to go to to uh to mikiko if you're available if not maybe uh vin or, or dave on on this yeah, it's funny. I think we're kind of struggling with this too right now, or we're we're dealing with it. Um, I feel like it goes to the that question of like, what do you do with like one-off projects? Like, is this like a recurring task versus like a, a build project? I feel like build projects you'd almost want to look at existing like software, like frameworks for estimating story points for regular software. Um, but if it's something like, for example, you're consistently um, like if you're building a pipeline off of existing infrastructure, I would just look at how long it's taken before. Um, honestly, if it's like something that's like totally like new and it's, I was gonna say balls to the walls, but I gotta figure out, I gotta figure out more PC appropriate for this use. But um, I kind of almost feel like it's, you give the maximum number of story points, um, make sure your leadership is like super nice. And you also caveat a lot of stuff like make it seem like it's going to take two X longer than what you think it's going to take. So that even if it only takes 1.75 X longer, then it's like, it's still within <laughs> the bound. Um, and then just try to scope down from there. Um, I feel like, what was it? Uh, the mythical man, uh, the mythical man month, like, wasn't that written in regards to how bad, like waterfall, you know, uh, waterfalling was. And part of it was like estimating story points. So I feel like 
I was inspired by that to go, you know, just give them the worst possible estimate. Um, try to copy as much from other projects and see how long they took. And then try to find optim optimizations so that even if it's 15% shorter, it's, you know, we also can use, we also use story um, like poker cards. Those are nice. For one thing, it's very like tactile. So you can just go with the cards. Um, but also too, it's like a way to like raise disagreements because I think that's, that's like the hard part is like sometimes people have information that kind of will help you speed up stuff, but like you need to kind of give them the re the opportunity to go, no, you're wrong because of X, Y, Z. So story cards, like the poker card, agile poker cards, whatever. Those are great. Full on agile process, not so much, but agile poker cards, those are nice. So I feel like there's some aspects of machine learning that maybe you could fit into the agile framework. Uh, you know, build a data pipeline, right? Like that's pretty tangible. Like, you know, uh, experimentation, probably not. Uh, finding the right model, probably not. Um, those things, I guess you just time box and, and move as quickly as possible. Like I like, um, let's say Andrew Ang that does like those one day sprints, just you can get up and running in, in one day. It won't be perfect, but at least it'll give you a skeleton of what to work out. What to, what to elaborate on, I guess. Uh, Vin, what are your thoughts? I'm going to yield most of my time to Greg because he's the OG here. Mm -hmm. He'll have possibly the best answer yeah. out of all of us. But I mean, from my perspective, what I do is break everything up into three different workflows. You've got your data workflow, you've got your research workflow, and you've got your model development workflow. Your model development workflow is pretty traditional. You know, by that time, you know what you're deploying. You you have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. And so that's probably the most predictable side of this. But when you talk about like a data gathering activity, how long is it going to take you to find the data that you need for a particular project? I don't know. I don't even know how to estimate that. You know, it could take you, you may never find it. You may not be able to gather it. You may, you know, so there's, there are going to be processes that you can scope with a more traditional, more accurate, then there are way, way, way uglier ones, which you have to create a different type of framework altogether, where you have gated reviews. You know, you're like, you were talking about that one day cycle or one week cycle, where you just see how far somebody can get in a week, present it to the rest of the team, have somebody from product management there, maybe have somebody who's a stakeholder, you know, who may be a voice, the user or something like that. And just say, Hey, this is how far I got. What do you think? Should we do another week on this? And then you can have a conversation and the business can make a decision. Eh, we're going to keep going or nah, kill it next one. And now I yield my time to Greg, who's going to roll this answer. <laughs> hey, go for it. Uh, the, well, my, my focus is going to be about how do you t-shirt size post-deployment experimentation. So if you think about a recommendation system, there are some tests that you need to make to make sure that your models are behaving or to collect data about whether your models are doing things as expected. And for that, you need to figure out how long it will take you to collect the right data for it. And one good approach to do so is to, when you're designing your experiment, you have to split your control in your test at the level of testing. So for example, 
you're checking whether your recommendation system is uh, giving you more sales. And do you want to put that split at the time where the person clicks buy? Or do you want to split your population at the time the person enters the website? And for these two stages, you will need different sizes of population. So you have to really understand what is the traffic on your website right now that will give you that population. And obviously, you can have 50,000 visits coming in when only 10% actually clicks the button to buy. So when you put that split of control and test at the click button, then you don't need as much sample population to perform your experimentation versus putting it at the entrance. So at the entrance, it may require you to have 50,000 times two, one for the control, one for the test. So it will take you more time. And then other considerations to take is the model that I want to test. How much data do you need to ingest in it? What kind of models? So if you're for a recommendation system, you are having this funnel approach where you're filtering from the top down. You may be using a linear um, model, then you use some XGBoost, and then down there you have a more sophisticated one, like a neural net. These models require a different amount of data. And then the time for training and all that stuff. So you have to understand the technical requirements of all of these and understand the size of data that you need to ingest. So all of these factor in to how do you design a good experiment that will minimize the time it takes to collect the data to confirm whether your newly launched feature is doing the job or not. Excellent. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, Dave, any, uh, any thoughts here? Yeah, I was just typing in the chat, but I can oh, yeah. go ahead and say it here. Yeah. Um, so I, I interpreted the question from a methodological perspective, which is how do I communicate to my product owner, my scrum master, whatever the term du jour is for the person who's running the project? How do I communicate to them the particulars of what the nature of the work is vis-a-vis -vis the methodology? So for example, if you use classic scrum, uh, you need a product owner, first and foremost, that can define for you up front, hey, I want you to develop a machine learning model to enhance the product or do something that's cool. And I need that product owner to define what is success, right? And I'm going to use accuracy. Please don't shoot me for, I'm just going to use that as a moniker for success. It could be sensitivity, specificity, whatever, right? F1 score or whatever. But I'm going to use accuracy. So I need an accuracy of at least 80% days. And then what I need as the data scientist, the machine learning developer, whatever the term is for what I do, I then also need the ability within the methodology to say, okay, look, that's my goal. However, I can't guarantee you that I'm going to be able to deliver that unless you allow me to do what is frequently referred to as a spike, which is a, is a particular type of exploratory work effort within an agile project management framework. And uh, if you're doing classic Scrum, sprints were supposedly 30 days, but if you're XP-ish, then you do two weeks, whatever it might be. Hopefully you've got enough time for the duration of your spike to do the initial POC, the initial valuation to say, look, yeah, maybe this is possible, product owner, that we can do this with additional follow-on work, or nope, it's not looking too good. So what you need to do is you need to be able to incorporate this idea of uncertainty within the methodological framework of how you do project delivery, because that's the reality. 
just because you want to build an awesome machine learning model doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it, but you won't know until you try. So you need to have the, you need to have the tools in place from your project management perspective to allow you to do that. I've worked on teams where we had spikes. That was a, t- a particular type of sprint deliverable for somebody who did work that wasn't expected necessarily to return back actual working code. The idea was to gather information. And that's the first thing you need to start with if you're going to be building a machine learning model as part of a product development methodology. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. Kostab, hopefully that um, answered your question. Um, doesn't look like there are any other questions coming in on LinkedIn or YouTube or anywhere else. Anywhere else. Uh, so we'll go ahead and wrap up. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out. Uh, be sure to check out the podcast episode that was released just today. Dr. Joe Perez. Uh, next, we got a big week. A uh, few events. I'll be uh, doing the Comet um, the, the office hours on Wednesday. Uh, this Wednesday, we've got, we're talking all about data, understanding data, validating data, versioning data, data pipelines, data governance, all that stuff. Um, we've got a panel discussion with good friend of the show, Matt Blaza will be there. We'll also have uh, Jimmy Whitaker, who's a uh, uh, ad dev advocate over at uh, Pachyderm. Uh, then we're also going to have uh, Dr. Abe Gong, CEO of Superconductive. That's a team uh behind uh, great expectations so it will be a great uh, session so definitely tune in for that uh, questions are welcome you guys are encouraged to come in join us um, you know it'll be a lot a lot of fun then the following week i've got a panel discussion with uh, three other awesome individuals uh, people who i truly truly look up to respect and admire we got uh, my good friend and you know i think you all know her shantan tully she'll be on the uh, on the common office hours, we're going to be talking about experiment management. So we got Shantan Tully, uh, Susan Shu Chang. If you guys don't know Susan, she's epic. She's awesome. Follow her on LinkedIn. And then W. Ronnie Huang, who uh, used to build laser guns uh, and now is a uh, research scientist at uh, Google. So that's going to be an epic one too. Um, so yeah, I'm pumped for the um, remainder of the uh, Comet office hours. Just like four panel discussions lined up over the next few weeks. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully you guys can tune into that. Uh, as usual, a bunch of cool podcast episodes being released in the next few weeks. Uh, you're going to have to stay tuned and, and, and see what's up with that, man. A lot of good stuff happening. Um, and then what else has happened this week? Yeah, but like I said, presentations as well. I'll be presenting with, um, so I talked about the panel discussion, and then I'm also doing a webinar with Pachyderm on Wednesday. Um, we're going to be talking about future-proofing your ML ops stack. Um, and then also on Thursday, doing a webinar with Cognolytica, uh, lessons from the field in building your ML ops strategy. Uh, so a lot of talk about ML ops. And like the more I learn and read about ML ops, like the less I know. It's just a massive, broad field. Um, so yeah, be sure to join in on those if you can. Uh, in yeah. The question is, is there something you won't be doing? Yeah. <laughs> I will not be resting. That is for sure. Uh, that, that is for sure, man. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, packed for the next few weeks uh, and hopefully making it home to California sometime in February. So I'll be in Sacramento uh, some point mid-February. So Vin, you know, I'll definitely holler at you. Um, anybody else uh, that is in 
or around the Northern California zone. Get at me, you know, Sacramento is home, but um, I'll be spending some time in San Francisco as well. Uh, my sister lives out there, so I'll be out there too. So hoping to connect with, uh, you know, Mickey Goen and some other friends, maybe even Mark. Guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>